1: whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential.
0: Wojciech Bonkowski is Poland's first master of wine, something of a polymath. He speaks five languages and has a PhD in musicology. I caught up with him to chat about his country's dynamic wine industry, his weakness for strange and unknown regions, his predilection for white wines over reds, why smart practice is the way to improve as a taster, and the similarities between tea and wine. Hello, Wojciech, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, wonderful to see you and to hear you. And are you in Poland? I'm in Tokaj, in
1: Hungary, actually. Of course, of, of why, of course? Well, it's it's my 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 favorite region, uh, or one of my favorite regions, and of course the one that I wrote uh, my MW uh, research paper on. So I'm here to research uh, a big report now on the wines and and meet friends, and it's and
0: it's great, yeah. And we'll talk about your MW dissertation later, because it's really interesting. And I did my MW dissertation on Tokai as well, so we can chat a bit more about that. I want to start with just talking a bit about your upbringing, because you speak all these languages. And you're a kind of citizen of the world or citizen of nowhere, as somebody once said. Just tell us where you were brought up, because there was a French bit in there somewhere, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, I grew up in France six years. Um, my father uh, worked in exports Um Back in those days, in the late seventies, uh, you know, we had this in, in communist Poland, or what we called it was socialist Poland. Mm. We had a centrally central economy, so there were central uh, state-owned export bureaus for the various industries, and so he worked in one of those, uh, you know, um, metal products and machinery. Mm. So he worked in Nigeria, in Egypt, and then he was sent to France. So I was I was two, and my sister was just born, six months old, and, and with my mum we all moved to, to Lyon. So we stayed there for six years, and it definitely got my um, French language to a very good level.
0: So you grew up speaking French as well as Polish, but yeah. you also speak perfect English, we'll find out why, and you speak amazing Italian and a bit of Spanish as well. So, I mean, you are your sort of five languages, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I've. Uh, I think probably the bilingual bringing um, contributed to that sort of language, you know, mm-hmm. easiness to to learn and follow different languages for sure.
0: And 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 was wine? Were you aware of wine? I mean, you were only there. You were only up to the ages of eight. So I hope you weren't drinking too much wine in Lyon, <laughs> Beaujolais.
1: <laughs> I, I actually drank my first wine at the age of eighteen. I was I was I was quite a careful boy. Uh, but yeah, of course, wine was around. I just wrote this column on, on your website about you know the, the, some of the stories around wine when I was a kid, and uh, definitely there was wine on the table. And uh, you know we had French friends, and uh, there was essentially no other drink. But also later when we returned to Poland, I remember I think we were in a typical family from that point of view because uh, there was never any vodka in the house. Mm. Uh, and I only saw my, my dad drink beer uh, in the summer uh, when it was 40 degrees and, and we would bike in the countryside to, to a country shop and, and he would down a beer. But otherwise it was always wine. So, so oh, I was surrounded by wine. And then, yes, of course. Yeah.
0: And then you studied Italian literature at University in Warsaw. I just wonder why Italian rather than French? Because there's this very strong connection between Poland and Italy, isn't it? I don't know whether it's a Catholic thing, is it? I don't know.
1: No, I don't think it's got anything to do with religion. It, it actually goes uh, back much, uh, much longer from the Middle Ages. There was this very strong Italian influence in Poland and the big exchange. You know, the Polish um, Polish nobility went to Italian universities as soon as they were founded. Uh, we had an Italian queen married to our king. Uh, she brought many architects to, to Poland. So definitely there's this affinity, although, you know, we also have some very strong links to France. But uh I I knew French well and, and I had already a certificate in French, but I I was desperately in love with, with Italy and Italian language from an early age. Um, then I started listening to Italian opera a lot and, and this was also a massive, um, a, a, a massive kick. So I was, you know, I memorized all the librettos of Verdi and Puccini without, without understanding a word. (laughs) <laughs> but I could literally single recite, you know, uh, uh, Rigoletto. Uh, so I had this very strong impulse to go and learn Italian first in high school, and then I uh, there was definitely something um, uh, that interested me a lot, and and I decided to pers- pursue it further.
0: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's finished with your non-wine studies. We'll come on to wine in a minute. You also got a PhD in musicology, and your dissertation was on Frederick Chopin, another Pole, and you later wrote a book about his favourite food and wines. What did he like to eat and drink? I mean, he was he was a sort of strange chap, wasn't he? I mean, um, obviously very ill uh, and died young as well. Of what, of consumption, was it?
1: Yeah, tuberculosis, although there are now various sort of new medical theories, but that, that was the accepted truth for many years. Yeah, uh, he he was eccentric. He was quite a dandy of his time. At the same time, he was very representative for the social uh, changes of, of his time, you know, the 1830s and 40s, the the bourgeois revolution, uh, the salons, the literary and musical salons of his time. So, so he definitely socialized on, on a very high level. He wasn't a, a foodie, as we would call it today. He was an agoume, but uh, but obviously what he ate and drank reflected, you know, his social status and what was going on at that time. And I I managed to find many very interesting references to his wines and and foods. So in my book, I took notably about how he orders his secretary to, to fetch him some Tokai and send him to Marseille, where he was staying with Georges Chant, because he, he, he couldn't do without Tokai. So you, so you see, here's that connection. Uh, and some other you know, interesting stories, like they go with uh, Delacroix to a bar and they drink wine at the bar, talking about, you know, the theory of art. You can, you can read this very interesting passage in the Delacroix um, journals. Or champagne, so they, they go to one of the famous restaurants of that time in Paris, Le, Le Rocher de Cancale. And uh, uh, the friends know that Chopin is the best connoisseur of wine, so he gets to read the wine list and order to go into <laughs> the wine list. So it's it's very it's very contemporary in a way. And there's there's no I think no detachment when you read those stories. They they seem like it could have happened yesterday to you know to us meeting mm-hmm. Chopin in, in the restaurant. Then
0: he gets. God, to it would have been the amazing, list. wouldn't it? Imagine if you're sitting there and <laughs> Frederick Chopin walks in with Delacroix. I mean, that's not bad. That's that would be you know that would be better than bumping into a. Cup of Hollywood actors. Just tell us how you got first interest in wine, because I think it was a bottle of of Bordeaux that got you hooked, wasn't it? Not a bottle of Duckeye. Where did you drink it and with whom?
1: I had a friend who came to see me um, on my birthday, 21st birthday, and she brought this bottle of Midoc that she had got from her father, uh, she, she knew nothing about wine, I knew nothing, little, little, very little about wine. And so she brought this wine to sort of toast me. And so we, you know, we, she stayed for an hour and we had like half half the bottle or two thirds of the bottle. And when she left, I remember going to my dad and saying, you know, have have you got a book about wine? Because I'd like to read a bit more. And I think it was, there was something in the, in the taste of that wine was truly really better than the wine that I was normally drinking back then, mm-hmm. you know, my student years, but I think it was a very logical evolution also of, you know, all, all the cultural uh, things that, that attracted me to France and Italy and, and you know, the geography and the, and the history and the culture and, and, and all that exposure that I had had to wine before. So it, it was the trigger. Yes, it was a, a bottle of Medoc, which is paradoxical because I'm, I'm not terribly fond of Bordeaux today. No, neither am I. <laughs> but, but, but that's where it started. I think for many people it starts with a classic and, and so it did for me yeah.
0: And you wrote a tasting note on it, didn't you, on the wine?
1: Yeah, I, I, to, I, I, I took a booklet, I took a note, notebook and I decided I'm going to be taking notes on all the wines that I taste now, from now on, and I started with theory. I was always very strong on theory, so I, I you know, that book that I got from my dad, I wrote down all the French appellations in that, in that notebook in, in geographical order, you know, starting with Alsace um, and... <laughs> Clockwise, and then I was finishing
0: I would, with Ventoux or something like that. I yeah, can't think of anything yeah. begins with a Z. No, really, noir. no, you
1: finish with Loire, and and um, and then I was filling this notebook, you know, appellation by appellation. So, for example, I remember I went to the supermarket with the notebook, and I, and I saw I never tasted a gayak, so I, I bought a Gaillac, and I was tasting that gayak and I was entering that into the notebook. I, I was very systematic, you know.
0: I think it's so right. it was the A to Z of wine with Wojciech Bonkowski, right? S-
1: sort of, you know. Of course, a bit quite quite funny, and and I never got to taste all of them uh, back yeah. then but uh, i had a plan i think mm. yeah. <laughs> have you have you still got the notebook oh yeah sure it's red yeah it's small in red not not very practical and uh, you've got to show it to me next time i see you i'm yeah. dying
0: to see the notebook and then then you went to england didn't you to work at Obbins? um just tell us what took you there because you've always had this connection with england haven't you
1: uh yeah i mean my my uh grandfather moved to England in the seventies he was a first a correspondent for the polish press and um, agency then he decided to stay he defected most you could say he defected to the west. Uh, so, yes, we had this family connection. And then, um, I had a girlfriend at that time when we graduated, uh, from university. She got, she she, she, she was, she's a cellist and she got a, a scholarship to study at Trinity College to do a post-grad at, at Trinity. So I decided to go with her also because I was just starting my PhD on, um, on Chopin, on Chopin's editions. And so it was useful for me to go to the British Library a bit and, and, uh, and read, but of course it was wine too, because, uh, because I was also already writing a wine book at that time. Um, and so the, the, the opportunity that London offered to taste wines was, of course, you know, unmatched still is. Yeah. So, so I decided to move and, and, you know, to sustain myself, I, I, the first day we, we landed, uh, in London, I had, I had to find a job and I went to, I went to the first wine shop that I saw, which was on Canary Wharf. And they say, yeah, sure. Um, uh, we we're very happy to give you 20 hours per week selling wine over the counter and it, and it was I think it was a very good experience I never worked in restaurants or or in cafes I never waited tables but i worked in retail and i think it's a i think it's a very very useful experience for, for a wine writer to be honest
0: why because you got to taste so many wines or you got to meet consumers people yeah, that drink yeah the stuff. You, you meet yeah.
1: normal people who who don't have the romantic notions about wine that you have or the or the encyclopedic approach uh they, they're just looking for something nice but they have criteria which is which is also interesting to, to know what they are and and you got to sell, you know. You've got to be convincing. You've got to, you know, to 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 be a good seller. You you, you need to talk to people, which I've never been very good at. Uh, so that was good, uh, you know, a good a good a uh, good learning curve, getting out of my shell. And uh, yes, and uh, you know, you could see what what is popular. Which definitely is something else that wine critics get excited about. So we had a yeah. big shelf at oddments in those days of Greek wines. And, and you know, I, I think I sold five or six of them in the year. Uh, yeah. But plenty of Dom Perignon and plenty of New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, if you were in Canary Wharf, right? Yeah,
1: there, there was one of the best performing shops in London. And, and so that was also a good experience, yeah, because it was mm. quite high, you know, high, high, high yeah. drama, a high drama wine shop, I'd
0: say. And then you went back to Poland, 2002, and you started The Polish Wine Guy. Was that the book you were already writing? You know, you got yeah. involved with the Polish Wine Awards, the Polish Consumer Wine Magazine. I mean, you know, this was quite an ambitious move. You suddenly decided you're going to be a wine writer if you just worked in Obvins for a year or so, right? Um, was there an audience for it in Poland at the time?
1: There was a burgeoning audience. I was already writing about wine before I moved, uh, by by coincidence, by chance. But it was it was a very virgin market, and so there were lots of opportunities opening, and uh, and uh, so you know lots of doors, and I was just opening the doors and walking through them because uh, I was young and 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 naive and uh, you know pretentious and and very con- very confident. Uh, and so I think it followed from there. I, I wouldn't have achieved all of that, of course, in England, where, where you know I was, I was nobody, even though in, in mm. retrospect, it would probably have uh, helped my career in wine, maybe to have stayed in London and, and you know try, find a job and maybe move up the, the ladder in, in I don't know, in the trades. but, but mm. yeah Poland, you know we, we created from scratch an entire wine culture. Not not only me. I had I had several colleagues. So the book I I wrote the guide I wrote was co- co-written with uh, Marek Bieniec, who was the first Polish wine critic, and he offered. Um, he he said we should write a, a wine guide like you know Betin de Sauve or the Hachette, mm-hmm. uh Guide de Vin, and uh, and I said yeah why not? So uh, so we had fifteen thousand wines in the third edition and then thirty three. Wow. It was it was a huge endeavor. I was I was uh, I was working full time on this. But this is where I got all my tasting experience and my tasting education, you know, I had to taste everything, yeah. everything. I ha- had to go to the Salon des Vins de Loire for four days mm-hmm. and taste, you know, all the Vouvre's that are produced. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was, it was, I think it helped me immensely that book and then the wine magazine that we started and uh, it was all very gradual and the audience was there. I still, I still have uh, readers or clients who who come from those days, and are still, you know, faithful uh, followers of what we do today. And uh, we, so we gradually expanded that and and grew the business. And uh, yeah, you know, we're still we still live. So I think there is an audience.
0: So absolutely- I mean, and, and Poland makes a bit of wine itself, doesn't it? I mean, just are there any good? I just wondered how old is the history of wine production in in Poland? Yeah. Um.
1: Yeah, it started with, you know, the, the regime change and the economic change in 89, but it really has developed massively over the last decade, I would say. And even the last four or five year, years, there's, there's a big new dynamic. So no, we're, we're, we're huge now. We have uh, over 500 wineries and over a thousand hectares. Uh, We don't export, it's a bit like English wine, Uh, you you have 20 years uh, advantage over us in sort of marketing the wines and then telling the world about them, as well as some, some, you know, very British confidence in, in their quality. (laughs) <laughs> um but yeah polish wine is going to be uh, the next big thing because we have uh, we have uh, enormous potential to grow so at the moment i would say you know there's some some very good wines not maybe not world class wines yet but um, we've got uh, you know cool climates uh, crisp acid profiles interesting wines. um uh, which varieties uh, 80% hybrids, uh, although some of the new PV, like Sauvignet Gris, I think are, are very interesting grapes with the big potential also for quality. Uh, we'll, we'll see more of them and then they'll get more excited, uh, more exciting. And, and then we have Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Noir, uh, there's the there's... It's quite an eclectic mix of grapes, much more than in,
0: in in the UK, for example. Yeah. So the next big thing you heard it here first, folks. Absolutely. We're going we're to see. You said once that you were born digital uh, as a wine writer. Just tell us what 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 you mean by that, because you started off writing in a notebook, but you went digital pretty early on, didn't you?
1: You remember the late '90s? Uh, we had no Instagram and no Facebook, uh, and that was even before blogs. I think Jamie Good started blogging in 2001. And he was one of the first bloggers but before you had those internet forums you know there was the wine lovers page in the uk there was um there was another one in the us that i i I forget the name and so i started writing on those forums because it was a good entry gate for you know informed amateurs you didn't have to be Mm -hmm. professional to post there and and you had plenty of peers and then it was all very encouraged very good environment very good community very encouraging so i started posting you know casual wine notes there and i was very disciplined so I, w- I would write up you know all my travels and tastings and and the, 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 it amounted to quite a bit and and um and then i also started blogging in 2000 i think eight. Um, so this was in parallel already with the print uh, activity that we had in poland but i definitely started reading and, and writing about wine on on the internet so so you know in that in that sense i think i'm I'm more like the new generation that, that mm. starts uh, the wine interests online rather than, you know, in, in print, even mm. though, of course, I was reading books and, and
0: following printed magazines. I mean, and that's been a huge change, you know, in the last 20 years, hasn't it? I mean, you know, I come from a generation that was still writing everything in newspapers and magazines. And I, well, I've shifted with it. Do, do you think these the process, the changes have been positive? I mean, I know you are slightly rude sometimes about influences and tiktokers and things like that i mean even with your digital footprint as it were but do you see a a downside to it sometimes
1: yeah you know i don't like nonsense i like i like competence you know so so this is this is probably the 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 slightly mixed experience of my generation that we everything is very easy now and everybody's a wine communicator but not everybody's a quality wine communicator and and i think I, i really valued um good writing and I really value good criticism. I think criticism is very important. It's not only wine journalism and wine stories, but I also like wine reviews. I I like people who, you know, taste through a flight of of, uh, 2021 Bordeaux and just just, uh, give, give recommendations to people. I think that's still very relevant. Mm. It it might be unfashionable to say that uh, because I don't know, you know, ratings uh, scores are not very uh, in on vogue now, but I think it's still pretty relevant. So I I I, I really look for people who have experience. Um, integrity and insights, and that's not always uh, a rule on TikTok, as we all know. But, but yeah, of course, the democratization is something very positive because we have mm-hmm. emerging uh, voices, we have uh, much more di- a bigger di- diversity of opinions and voices than we had in the past. Mm. it's much less institutionalized you know even today to 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 be printed in one of the uh, magazines in the uk it's very difficult i can tell you from experience yeah Mm. i'm I'm pitching some of the magazines which with stories that i think are very relevant and and uh, and and they just say no i I just get no answer at all so yeah so in a way, it, it's great that people can 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 start on the internet and even, you know, eventually they even start the printed projects. Imagine like Trink. This is a magazine mm-hmm. that, you know, could have, couldn't have existed uh, twenty years ago and now it does.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you decide which areas to specialise in? I mean, I love a quote of yours. You say that you have a weakness for the strange and the unknown, and then 150 years ago you'd have been an entomologist collecting rare species in Siberia. So where's that taking you? You're in Tokai right now, but where else uh, the uh, the weird and wonderful places you've been to and you write about.
1: You know, I've I've been to many to many wine regions in Europe and especially Eastern Europe, of course, which is what what was called Eastern Europe in the UK. We, we call it Central Europe down here, uh, and of course there are many interesting terroirs and countries. And, and I think the the wine stories of Montenegro um, or Albania are waiting, really waiting to be told. Uh, we we have a lot of interest in places like Georgia and Armenia. Mm. uh so i think i think there's there's an entire um area let say east of of the Rhine that is really uh waiting to be discovered and and told about mm. Uh so yeah you know I think I'm co- I'm collecting great, great varieties so I'm definitely chasing you know the 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 next the next, um, next Aidani from Greece or the or the next um, or the next Marastina from Croatia I think Croatia is a very exciting country um, uh, that that is 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 on the up and uh, And definitely, I'm not so interested in going to Burgundy or Bordeaux uh, to meet the same producers all, all over again. I'd rather go and, and discover a, you know a completely
0: new group of producers in Calabria, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think in many ways it's vital work because lots of people are going to Bordeaux and Burgundy. I mean, every wine merchant and, and his or her dog is, 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 you know, going to the same chateau in Bordeaux during on Primo week. But people going to Croatia or Albania, I mean, I've been to Albania, but not to a vineyard in Albania. We should go, actually. It'd be quite good fun. I'm going next week, so... Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, tell me, tell me how you get on. <laughs> So, how do you earn your living now? Because you do lots of different things. You're part of something called the Ferment Media Group, aren't you? You know, how much of what you do is writing, how much is is uh, is tasting, how much is lecturing, how much is personal appearances. What do you do exactly now?
1: Yeah, I, I wear many different hats, uh, definitely. But yes, Ferment in, in Poland is, is the media group that we created with, uh, my partner, Eva Rebak, uh, back in 2017, and which includes a printed magazine. It, it includes a, a an online wine magazine, which was very popular. We, we reached at peak, uh, 600,000 unique users per year. So that's quite, quite an audience. And we do uh, wine school. Uh, so I sometimes, sometimes I teach twice or, thr- or thrice per week. Uh, presenting wines from different regions and then we do events uh, you know commissioned events by wine regions or, or or wine countries but we also do our own format so we've got a very popular um uh, warsaw wine experience is the biggest wine salon in poland and we all also organize this so we've got like a, ba- a basket i would say of or sorry ecosystem i should say today ecosystem of, of various services that we offer <laughs> and this is the this is this is my main employer, my own company, and then of course I do I do writing for international publications. I do mm-hmm. judging, not a lot, but I, but I like judging where I judge fifty great Greek wines and the counter. I like these competitions very much. Mm-hmm. And now with the you know with the with the MW there's, there will be new opportunities probably to consult and and um, and work with uh, with different regions to to on the market um,
0: market development. Let's talk about the MW, which is the Master of Wine, for people who don't know that. And you enrolled. Uh, I think I tried to encourage you to do it did, in 2016. Yeah, really you much. eventually became Poland's first Master of Wine early this year. Well done. Just what made you want to do it? I mean, you were pretty busy already, weren't you? I mean, with all these things you're doing.
1: I always push myself to do more, uh, sometimes with, you know... Uh, Horrible results. Um, I'm talking about this this morning's jog, for example, here in the swamps of of Tokai. That went very badly, but um, but yeah, uh, I, I think I was I think I felt back in you know 14, 15, 16, I was getting a bit lazy as a taster. You know, I was mm-hmm. I was. Um, I was um, taken to all those tastings in Tuscany, Barolo, on a bus with other journalists. who always taste the same wines, and I would taste the same wines all over again with pretty much the same approach. I think I needed a a, a kick to slightly refine my tasting, and that was the first impulse. Uh, of course, there was the ambition to you know to get the two letters, uh, but that was only part of the story. I think, and and yeah, I wanted. I think I wanted to learn also from you know people in, in the program, people in the process, and that is the major takeaway that you always have on the MW, especially the first year. You, you just absorb all of that, and it's, a, it's an immense contribution to, you know, to, to, to any wine, wine taste or wine professional. So this is how it started, yeah. I, I, yeah I, I wanted the challenge, and I wanted to grow, and uh,
0: yeah. And what advice would you give to somebody starting out on the programme now? I mean, it took you seven years, you know, the COVID in the middle of it. Yeah. There were frustrations, we could say, along the way. Would it, would it be to be patient?
1: Yeah, I think you have to be patient and very resilient, uh, because you'll, you'll get, you'll get bashed many, many times, uh, during the program. And it's, I know it's very discouraging mentally for many people. So you have to, you have to be mentally strong. I think it's good to ask yourself a few questions before you start. You know, why am I doing this? Why, why do I need this for? Can I afford it um, money-wise, but also can I afford the time that it takes? And can I afford to dedicate, you know, 50% or 100% of my mental energy to that? Mm -hmm. Do I have have support? Do I have a family that supports me? Uh, What what are the possible, you know, problems on the way? Because uh, it, it is tougher... Uh, than anybody thinks when they start yeah. so you have to you, you need to be ready for something that will really change your life I think.
0: Yeah it's like running a marathon isn't it you've got to you've got to be in shape. Uh,
1: it's like running 30 marathons I'd say. <laughs>
0: yeah. And your dissertation uh, like mine was about Tokai. Uh, what did you write about because it was quite controversial wasn't it?
1: It's called the research paper now, Tim, be careful. Oh, sorry. it's so long ago since I did it. <laughs> the, I,
0: 2001, remember, you know, it's 22 years ago. <laughs> the are very touchy
1: about it. Um, I wrote about the vineyard classification in Tokay. And some, some of our listeners might know that Tokai was the first region in the world to officially classify its vineyards in the, in the, 17, in the 18th century, in the 1730s, um, earlier than Port and earlier than Chianti. Mm. Uh, And this classification is no longer uh, part of wine law, but of course it's part of part of the wine culture here, the vineyard names, the you know the 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 inherent um, hierarchy of vineyards, and especially relevant now as uh, many producers uh, focus on dry wines. As we know, single vineyard dry wines are are a very topical um, thing in many regions around the world today. So I what I did was to apply the Austrian system as the Lage. Mm-hmm. which is a very developed system and very structured system and, and it's now going to be officially part of Austrian wine law probably next mm-hmm. year. So it's also a very successful system. And I, 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 tried, I tried to extrapolate this to, to Tokai to see what, what comes out of applying that template and, uh, and see what, what are the other opportunities and, and maybe also um, uh, challenges of, of, of doing a new vineyard classification in Tokai here.
0: And have they, have they adapted it, adopted it, rather? There is a big discussion. There is
1: opposition from some of the producers, especially in the large houses, uh, the smaller wineries that usually also are more focused on dry wines. They're definitely interested in it. I think the, the politics of this are going to be very complicated. Um, it's not very clear who should. Who should implement it? I don't think it's going to be the official um, mm. Consejo, the official uh, consortium here.
0: It, it really is. Let's face it.
1: I, I <laughs> think around I'm, the world, I think it should be. I think it should be an association of small producers that will start, you know, bottom up, as we say. Mm. But uh, yeah, it's under discussion. They, they, it's, it's a long way ahead. But mm. but uh, also, what I wanted was to initiate the, the discussion about it and how to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. And you talked about the dry wines. What shape is Tokai in right now? I mean, it's probably better known still for its sweet wines, the, the Azu styles. Where do you think its future lies? Is it with sweet wines, with dry wines, or, or a combination of the two? And do you see dry wines becoming more important?
1: Yeah, I've had 150 conversations about it in the last week, so I'm, I'm very prepared for this. and um, yeah, about 20% of the wines today are dry globally in the region. But if you take the premium wines, if you take the, the good wines, I think it's more like 50%. Uh, percent, mm. And it's definitely growing. And the sweet wine market around the world and also in Hungary is stagnant at best. And even though we, I think we might all agree that Tokay makes some of the best sweet wines in the world and probably the best sweet wines in the world, in my opinion. And yeah. also, you know, the, the top are wines of total class. Mm. But there's only a very limited market for these wines, and also it's it's not very clear whether global warming is helping uh, to make these wines or not. I think that, I think they're going to become rare. It's going mm. to be become more difficult in some vintages to make them, and the quantities because are... you
0: won't have the humidity you need yeah. for, for botrytis to develop. Yeah, some
1: yeah. years are very dry. Um, yeah, some years are very dry and um, so of course you know dry, dry wine is the way to go definitely and uh, the, the development in the last decade has been huge so I think today there are some really world-class wines made I would say the top 50 dry formants and or dry wines in tokai today are on the level of of Austrian German wines uh, yeah. or, or getting there. So, so definitely something to watch. But there's a lot of ferment here. I mean, the region is in a is in horrible economic condition. And, and, you know, there's a lot of um, nobody comes here. It's at the end of the world, no, to- no tourism. There's little infrastructure also. I mean, if you come here, there's not, not a lot to do. Mm. Uh, so it's so it's really just about the wine. It's very rural, um, and uh, Hungary is, is is in dire straits, really, in terms of its economy and and political position. So it doesn't is not it's not helping. The war isn't helping at the moment. Some some countries are boycotting Hungarian wines because of the stance of of the Hungarian government, like uh, Poland or Sweden. Mm. Um so it's, it's a rampant crisis uh, but mm. at the same time I think quality
0: is is really on the rise it's, it's never been better really yeah yeah,
1: yeah. there's a lot of small yeah. producers every every time i come here there's like 10 or 15 new new family wineries mm. so um i think when tokai reemerges it will be taken very seriously
0: um mm. as as a top wine region mm. Just tell us which regions, other than Toka, you think are the most underrated in the world, and maybe the most overrated. You know, just quickly. I'm just interested in your opinion. Do you think, hey, you know, you've said Pol- you know Poland has potential, <laughs> but, but give us, give us, you know, where do you think are the underrated yeah. gems, really? If you were giving somebody advice as a wine, yeah, drink?
1: I think I think Greece has some terrific wines now on the islands and on the mainland, and, and some are getting discovered, like Santorini. But there's much, mm. much more to Greek wine than just Santorini. I think Croatia is, is going to be the next Greece. It's got many similarities with Greece, you know, lots of islands, lots of, lots of great varieties, Mediterranean whites and reds. And also they've got the continental part, which makes, you know, very nice, crisp white wines. So definitely, I would be looking at Croatia. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking forward to that trip to Albania because I tasted a few Albanian wines and I think uh, great terroirs and some great great DNA material there. So uh, I effect, hope
0: you'll do a column for me about the Albania trip. Uh,
1: I'll, I'll 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 do with with pleasure. I think Portugal, you know, Portugal hasn't hasn't really sort of made it yet on the international mm. scene. I think some of the of the red wines, but also now the white wines are really exciting. They also have volcanic terroirs, you know, the Azores, uh, I think Madeira is going to be making some interesting table wines very soon. Um, and mainland Portugal, I, I love the door of whites and reds, I think they're really classy wines. Uh, so so th- these are the countries I look for, also for value, if, if you want to spend your money well. And overrated? What would you say is overrated? Well, you know, I think Burgundy is overrated, honestly. I think there's a lot of ordinary wine made in Burgundy. Um, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, you know, I, I, I don't care so much about overrated wine regions. I, I, don't, I don't drink much Napa wine, for example. Mm-hmm. That, it doesn't really turn me on. I think Jura, you know, there's the, the bubble of Jura is is quite excessive. Some of the prices are really silly. I mean, I like the wines, but it's, mm. I think it's gone a bit too far. Mm. But overall, I think there's great wine made everywhere, and even the overrated wine region are making better wine than they used to. So, so it's hard to say that someone is like, you know, completely uh, yeah, com-
0: complete bollocks. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's probably true. Listen, tell us about your glass, because I mean, I've Travel with your famous tasting glass um well, the set of them really because you break them occasionally don't you but does your glass have a name you take your own glass to the cellars don't you
1: um i used to i don't do that anymore i think the mw healed me uh, from that i used to, i used to think i should have a standard glass uh, just to take you know one variable out of, of tasting wines uh and it was useful because in many places where you go there's still horrible glasses, uh France notably, uh but lots of wine fairs, uh so it, it was it was a practical consideration more than the romantic attachment that you attributed to it, uh, Tim. Um, <laughs> so it's gone
0: now, is it? Got, the tasting so, glass is so gone.
1: We're divorced. I mean, I've got the, I got the glass and I use it sometimes, but I, I think I'm, I've relaxed a bit more about it, like many other things.
0: <laughs> Just tell us, because, you know, it's interesting that you said you did the MW partly because you wanted to to, to improve as a taster tell people listening to the podcast how how you've become a better taster how do, how does one become a better taster is is it just practice
1: yeah i don't believe in talent and tasting i think it's, it's i think it's practice but it, it should be smart practice i think it's a bit like sports you know you can run every day and, and not improve but if you if you've got a plan and you're thinking what you're doing and you know how, how can i improve then i think i think you will so tasting for me you know, I, I got, I think I got a bit automatic in my tasting as a journalist because mm. I was tasting a lot of wines and, and I was happy with how I tasted, uh, because we're always happy with ourselves, uh, mm. here in the wine business. And I think the MW was, it was a good challenge from that point of view. So my intuition was right because it, it, it changed my tasting 180 degrees. I think, um, people focused too much on the aromas and, and, you know, on listing flavors and aromas, mm. making like a catalog of, sort of taste. like. I think it's much more important to look at the structure of the wine and it's much more important to look at, you know, how does this wine compare to its peers? Mm. Uh, Is it better? Is it different? Mm. What is really the style within the context? You know, what what are the little details that make this wine uh, unique Mm. or special? And and when you focus on this and not on the mango, you know, and the jasmine, Mm. then I think you become much more focused and much more structured. Then you also, for example, you taste Faster, because you don't have to, you know, write all of that encyclopedia of, of, of stone fruits. Um, mm. But you can just say, you know, this is this, this is crisper than than expected in this vintage, uh, mm. but consistent with this producer's approach of making, you know. Uh, Poised wines, and then you're, I think, you're giving the essence of the wine also to your reader when you write to taste in that.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that's where experience comes in and, and knowledge, really, isn't it, about the stuff that you've actually tasted? Um, as, you know, it's do, what do you feel about points? I mean, do you think they're a necessary evil?
1: Yeah, uh, there's, certainly a necessary, there's certainly a necessity. If they're evil, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I, I tend to use scores when I read other people's notes as well, not, not in isolation. Although when you have, you know, a big comparative tastings, the scores do help you organize, the, you know, the tasting mm. a little bit. And then, uh, in combination with, with the, with the note, I think that there's nothing really wrong with points. Uh, I think we've, we we, we used to be against them, I think we've mm. grown, um, to be used to them uh, and also to make good use of them you know both mm. when we score and when we read other people's scores so i'm not you know i'm i'm not political about scores uh, other than of course people who give 98 to everyone so.
0: yeah no i think it's i think it's a way of calibrating another palate so you're basically saying okay you know if somebody's given this 97 and something else 92 why you know and 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 what is the difference for that person then it's it's a way of i think saying Does this person know what they're doing? For me, I mean, uh, there are some people I think of who I don't think know very well what they're doing, without mentioning any names. But just tell us which wines you you enjoy drinking at home. I mean, do you? Dedicate a large bit of your budget uh, of you know your measly salary as a wine writer uh, to buying top wines. I mean, you know, w- w- what do you I like? I get to a buy? lot
1: of free. I get a lot of free wine, so I'm I'm certainly privileged. I mean, I buy wine, but yeah, I've, I've loads. I've loads of wines to, to drink and taste. Uh, I'm I'm pretty eclectic, you know. We will follow the mood of the day. We'll follow the bottles that I have, you know, ready for tasting or that or the, that I'm curious about. So so there's no plan. But yeah, I drink. I drink. I would say eighty-five percent whites. Uh, Probably, um, you know, the the more you taste and and the more you work, the more you're tired, and you and you look for refreshment in wine uh, rather Mm. than you know a heavy experience and a heavy tannic experience. So I definitely definitely drink a lot of Grenavin, a lot of Mm. a lot of Foremint, a lot of uh, Riesling, a lot of you know Greek whites. Uh, I like Chardonnay. Uh, I really like Chardonnay. Um, I I love rosé. I drink, yeah. I drink a lot of rosé. I think rosé is, is a lovely category, and uh, and I I enjoy Provence rosé very much, honestly, when it's well made, for example, and
0: sparkling wines, you know. And what about when you're not drinking wine? How do you get away from wine? You're interested in tea, I know, yeah. and music. Were you ever a musician or just a musicologist?
1: No, I never played music, and it was met with astonishment when I enrolled for musicology at the university. And um, I had I had actually. To play a little bit of piano um, to pass the exam, but otherwise I never played, and I never miss playing. Uh, I think it's a, it's it's a very tough occupation, and uh, it's even tougher to be to make money as a musician than it is as a journalist. So yeah. I, I, I don't miss that part at all. Yeah, I listen to music all the time. Uh, There are some days, I think, when I'm at my desk, I have like 10 hours of of playlists uh, running. Uh, Yeah, I I exercise, I run quite a bit. Uh, Yeah, tea tea is great. I think tea is a great detox. I'm trying to do uh, two or three uh, wines with two or three days a week with no wine. And tea's helping, although I've been getting a bit more into coffee recently. And it's interesting how we can, uh, you know, overlap the wine uh, tasting approach to tea and coffee. I think we we bring also a very structured approach to tea and coffee. The tea and coffee tastes don't have our vocabulary or our structures at mm. all. So that's, that's interesting also from that point of view.
0: Interesting. Listen, you're in Tokyo right now, even though it's a Sunday when we're doing this recording. I know you've got some visits lined up, so i better let you go. You've already done a run this morning. You're full of energy mm-hmm. and opinions. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope I'll see you very soon, my friend, either in London, maybe, uh, or in Albania. Who knows? In Albania. Yes. Thank you so much, Tim. Great talking to you. Cheers. See ya. What a truly formidable person. I'm so glad we got someone like Wojciech exploring regions that most other wine writers ignore. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Natalie Christensen from YeLands in New Zealand. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.